Well, I, uh, again, am super excited to have uh, Dr. Tiffany Preet uh, with us today. As we uh, talked in our first podcast, uh, we addressed uh, trauma um, and shared some examples of trauma, defined it. We also uh, uh, kind of put trauma into some categories. And we talked about trauma and its relation to intergenerational trauma and from an indigenous perspective as well with that. And and really appreciated that uh, awesome conversation with Dr. Preet. And we've invited her back to finish our conversation today around trauma. And today we want to address um, uh, trauma in the brain and the impact that that has and, and how the how the trauma piece of the of the brain deals with that uh, indigenous intergenerational trauma and then we'd also like to have a, a short conversation today around uh, trauma and what we would now co- uh, is coined as the term trauma-informed practice and how to address that uh, in the classroom and, and some strategies and suggestions and things that we can all uh, work on and improve um, our practice to benefit uh, all students. And so um, with that said, um, Dr. Preet, if you wouldn't mind just talking to us a little bit about trauma and the effect um, that it has on development and on the brain, we'd, we'd appreciate uh, some comments on that. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much for having me back uh, to do the second part. So I think it's really important to understand what happens to a child's brain or anyone's brain, actually, when they do experience trauma. And I think the best way to do this is through a visual. And I know it can be hard because it's a podcast, and so your listeners uh, won't be able to see what it is that I'm doing. But I'll try to be as detailed as possible um, to try and follow along with it. Uh, So to illustrate how the brain works, I wanted to talk about Dr. Daniel Siegel's hand model. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Um, Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor in psychiatry. And so you put your hand out in front of you like a stop motion. uh, And then you're going to lay your thumb across your palm in a horizontal fashion. And then you lay your four fingers down across your thumb. And so you kind of make this fist. And this represents your brain. So we're gonna talk about the different parts of our hand that represents our brain. So if you open your hand uh, open again, your wrist represents your spinal cord. And then the middle portion of your palm is your brainstem. And then your thumb, when we fold it back over your brainstem, this represents your limbic system. And your limbic system helps to regulate um, our bodies, including our conscious or unconscious functions. It's usually associated, associated with our emotions and our behavioral responses, but particularly it's associated with our survival mode. And that's when we go into fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, so the outside of our hand represents our cerebral cortex, and that is associated with our attention, our perception, awareness, thought, memory, language, as well as our consciousness. And so when we place our fingers down over our limbic system, so it's over our thumb, um, the front of our hands here, just above our fingernails, um, it represents our frontal cortex. Uh, which is associated with our higher cognitive functions, such as memory, emotions, impulse control, problem solving, social interaction, and motor function. So when our hand is in this this position, our brain is functioning the optimal way that we want it to, um, and that it's able to communicate with all the other parts of our brain as well. Uh, But when we do get overwhelmed with information, 
or certain situations that we might be in, we can lose control. And then um, we, what they call flipping your lid is where your, your fingers come back up and we lose contact with our higher cognitive functions. Uh, and we're now only operating with our limbic system. Uh, so sometimes this is referred to as our upstairs brain and our downstairs brain, and we need them both to be communicating with one another in order for them to work effectively. Uh, and so to put this into an educational perspective, if you do have a child who is experiencing trauma and that they have flipped their lid, uh, they're essentially operating from their limbic system. And so their frontal cortex is no longer firing the way that it should be and communicating with the rest of the brain. So we've lost higher cognitive functions. Uh, and with only the limbic system on, the child is in a state of survival mode. And so they're thinking in terms of fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, and they most likely will be in a hypervigilant state. And so they're looking for a perceived threat. So whatever type of trauma it is that they've experienced, their brain is just um, automatically going to be taking a look for that threat in the room. It's not something that they are um, actively trying to do. It's just an automatic response um, when you have experienced trauma. Uh, and so when, when you do have a child that's in this state, it's really hard for them to sit in a classroom and to actually learn anything to, you know, to sit through the class. Uh, and the reason why that is, is two other structures in the brain that is a part of the limbic system. And that's the hippocampus and the amygdala. So the hippocampus is largely associated with the memory center of our brain. This is part of our brain that is responsible for cataloging and filing our memories into our long-term long storage. It also plays a role with our senses, like our olfactory system, which is our sense of smell. So certain smells can evoke certain memories for us. You know, for example, if you were to smell um, fir tree sap, it might remind you of Christmas, um, going out into the forest and cutting a tree down, and you might associate that with Christmas time. And then we also have our amygdala. And our amygdala is associated with our emotional responses. And particularly, it attaches emotional content to our memories. So the more emotional a memory is for us, the more likely that we will actually remember that memory. And our amygdala helps us to form new memories. But there's more of an emphasis placed on memories that cause us fear. Uh, and that's part of the uh, survival mechanism. So our hippocampus and our amygdala have to do a lot with memories. Uh, so at times there can be sight, a sound, or even a picture that can be very triggering for somebody who has been traumatized. Um, if it reminds them of the trauma that they are living with or have lived with. And so they hugely play a role in one's ability to learn and to remember as well as your cognitive attention. But on top of this, a person who has experienced trauma has an increase in the body producing cortisol, and that's a stress hormone. And it actually stays in the body for several hours after a stressful situation has occurred. And cortisol affects the hippocampus as well as the amygdala. Specifically, it intervenes with your memory recallability. So when in a state of survival mode or experiencing stress, uh, a person's not able to regulate their body the way that it should be working. Uh, so your hippocampus and your amygdala and then added cortisol is affecting your ability to recall previous knowledge and it's not able to file new information correctly. Uh, so if you do have a child 
who maybe is experiencing trauma and experienced trauma before, before coming into school, they're going to have cortisol um, throughout their body throughout the day. Um, it's, it's not going to dissipate. It'll be in their body um, during class time. Um, so if you, are, if you are learning new content, uh, your, your brain's not able to catalog appropriately and cannot file it into your long-term memory appropriately either. And so I think that you can see um, what the problem is here. Um, and as educators, uh, you might think that you have a child who's not paying attention in your classroom, and, and that can be frustrating. Um, but really, if you do have a child who is experiencing trauma and who is in a state of survival mode, if you get angry with the child or raise your voice at them or get upset that they're not on task, it's only making the problem worse um, as you're adding more stress to the child, which increases cortisol and effectively stops the hippocampus and amygdala from working properly. So as educators, we need to be able to reactivate the upstairs brain and calm down the downstairs brain so that students can learn again. And that is the challenge. Well, that's awesome. I appreciate that. And I, uh, just for our listeners, I would encourage them uh, to go and to on YouTube even and, and visit Dr. Dan Siegel and his uh, flip lid theory, as Tiffany has explained it so well. Um, I hope that uh, we um, take opportunity to go watch him do the visual and, and think about that um, healthy brain, uh, fingers over the thumb, uh, activated learning and all of that. And then when it flips, uh, the disconnect and and like you said, um, Dr. Pree, I just love the idea of, of what a kid's coming into with my classroom, understanding the story behind them, um, understanding even that there may have been a stressful, stressful situation on the bus. Um, maybe um, I got up late. I didn't get breakfast. Um, maybe I, got, um, I'm, I was late getting out of my other class because I was writing an exam. I'm coming into another classroom at the high school level. Um, I'm late, I'm already stressed, and how we approach them is critical. And so when we understand, understand um, as you so well explained, um, the flip lid and stress and sensory and the overload of, of cortisol and, and toxic, toxic stress and, and, uh, and things like that, that we move into that area where a brain becomes traumatized. And, and last uh, week we talked... Um, or, or last time we met, I should say, we talked a little bit about um, intergenerational trauma and um, and looking at that from an indigenous perspective and, and intergenerational trauma. So understanding flip lid um, and the cortisol overload and, and, and toxic stress and all of that, um, guide us through how that um, relates to the, the indigenous uh, population and in indigenous intergenerational trauma and just just guide us through that piece of the conversation. Sure. Um, so I, I do want to talk about this in terms of an indigenous perspective. Uh, and so what I just described to you, the role of the limbic system on learning uh, is what happens to anyone, regardless of what your your race or your ethnicity is. Um, 
And so I, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about epigenetics and indigenous intergenerational trauma. Uh, and to, to put it simply, what epigenetics is, is that it's the study of how our genes and our environment interact with one another and how that influences our gene expression. Uh, so it, it doesn't modify our DNA, uh, just how our genes are expressed. So our genes can be influenced by the experiences that we go through. Uh, and Dr. Dean Ornish, who is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of, of California, has found that those experiences have the power to turn our genes on or off. And there have been several research studies now that show that gene expression can be passed down to the next generation. So in our, our first session that we did together, um, you had mentioned that you'd always wondered the way that you're living your life, if that affects your kids and your grandkids. And the answer is yes, it does. <laughs> uh, you essentially could be passing on to your posterity certain gene expressions that have been turned on or off by your own life experiences. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk about Katharina Chief Moon Riley's work. Uh, that she completed at the University of Lethbridge a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, it's not a study on epigenetics, but it is related to biological health. And Katharina is a member of the Blood Tribe. And for her Master's of Science thesis, she examined the biological impacts of residential schooling on the development of intergenerational trauma among Indigenous Canadians. So Katharina was looking at two factors. First was the allostatic load that the intergenerational survivors experience, as well as what their adverse childhood experience scores were. And so allostatic load means the wear and tear on your body um, experiences when you're exposed to repeated chronic stress. And then adverse childhood experience refers to traumatic experiences one might experience during your childhood that could significantly impact their physical, emotional, and mental health throughout the duration of their life. And so Katharina found that intergenerational survivors who had a mother that attended residential schools had a moderate increase in their allostatic load. And she also found that if you were the offspring of either a mother or a father who attended residential school, that you had a higher adverse childhood experience score. So in her paper, Katharina said that her findings are suggestive of the ways in which childhood trauma and systemic malnutrition in Canadian residential schools may have become biologically embedded, passed to subsequent generations, and exhibited through the dysregulation of allostatic systems to the next generation. So I think it's really important as educators to be aware of how trauma affects our, our brains, but also for Indigenous peoples, how colonization has influenced and continues to influence generations of Indigenous peoples, including Indigenous children. Uh, so which we, we talked about that um, in the last session. So there are additional challenges that Indigenous children are facing and living with that needs to be addressed. Uh, and so for, for people who work in the social work discipline or, or health discipline, um, they are generally referred patients to deal with this, this kind of trauma. And they have the toolkits of strategies and programs and frameworks to work with, uh, and, but usually it's on an individual basis. Uh, but on the other hand, when you work in the field of education, you know, we don't necessarily know when we have a child who has entered into our classroom who is suffering from trauma. And so that makes it that much harder to be able to address trauma when you potentially have 30 students who are in your classroom. 
So we, we don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to work one-on-one -on -one with a student, whereas in some of the other disciplines, um, that might be an option for them is to be able to work one-on-one -on -one with that child. Um, so instead, in the field of education, uh, a teacher would need to adopt and to implement a trauma-informed practice in their classroom. Um, so that's not sing singling out one or two students, it would be for the entire classroom. Uh, and if I've done my job properly in the past couple of podcasts so far, I, I hope that you can see that there is a need to be able to adopt a trauma-informed practice into one's classroom. Um, so if I've sold you on this point, awesome. But I'm also gonna have to disappoint you a little bit as well, um, because currently there really doesn't exist a lot of research in this area. Uh, and it's what we call a gap in the research. And so um, in my own program of work, and that means the research that I engage in, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in being able to progress into this research area. Um, but I feel that it's first important to research and understand the root cause of why we even need to look into this area. Uh, and so I've been working on understanding the role and effect of colonization and intergenerational trauma um, and how that has affected and continues to affect Indigenous peoples here in Canada as a first step to be able to progress looking at um, ways in which we can include trauma-informed practices into our classrooms as educators as a part of Indigenous child well-being. So and unfortunately, I, I don't have research that I specifically have conducted myself, um, but I can share with you what limited body of literature that does exist in this area, but it, it definitely, there needs to be some more research in this area. Um, it's fascinating to me as we, as you talked um, about, again, the, the piece of epigenetics and, and uh, again, it, it kind of scares me uh, <laughs> what my grandkids might turn out like uh, because of my life, but um, it, it is a fascinating area of research and, and how that all ties together. And, and I think, um, or I would like to think in the field of education um, right now, as it relates to uh, trauma and intergenerational trauma um, and even trauma-informed practice that we're looking for solutions, um, that we, we understand um, um, at, at some level of, of what's, what's happening or happened to individuals. Um, we understand um, that, uh, that students come with a story um, and that story for each student might be different. Um, uh, trauma and, and its impact um, obviously impacts people different and based on recovery time and cortisol and, and all of those things. And so when we start talking about trauma-informed practice in a classroom, um, as you mentioned, I, I, I think the research is, is just coming out on what that really means and what that looks like. Um, but, but what are a few practices that um, a teacher or a school could implement um, kind of Im immediately, I guess, that would have an impact on, on this and, and help to um, improve uh, the lives and the quality of life for a student in the classroom um, that ultimately impacts their quality of life as, a, as an adult and as a citizen and as a parent and, and all of those kinds of things. What are, what are, some, of, what are some of the things that you've learned and, and would like to share with us about practices in the classroom? Sure. 
Thank you. Um, so I, I, I do have a couple of um, practical suggestions, I guess, that you can um, work into your classroom. Uh, and again, the literature is, is very limited in this area. Um, but these practices are about how the education system can become places in which we foster healing for our students um, so that they are able to obtain success as students. Um, but I, I do have to say that you cannot take research or framework out of context. Um, you have to be able to translate it into what your context is. Uh, and so what I, what I mean by that is usually these frameworks or programs that you will read about or that you will learn about uh, will be written for a specific group of Indigenous peoples. Uh, but not all Indigenous peoples are the same. We have similarities between one another, but, but ultimately we are different. Um, so if there, for example, is a framework that is written specifically for the Mohawk people, uh, you would need to have it translated. And, and what I mean by translated is to adapt it um, into uh, wherever your context is. So your school division is here on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot people. So you would need to have somebody who could translate those frameworks and those programs into a Blackfoot context to be able to use it effectively in your school division. So I, I just want you to keep that in mind as I share with you some of the frameworks and different um, practices that you, you can um, include in your classroom. Uh, and the first one I'm going to share is Elaine Mordak and Rainy Gabrish's framework what they call is the Four Lodges. Uh, and it's based off of uh, Anishinaabwe teachings. And um, it is actually written for post-secondary. And so you can, you can still apply it in a, in a kindergarten to grade 12 context, um, but, you, but you should be aware of that. <laughs> so it includes four perspectives to consider when addressing trauma-informed education. And it is situated in the four directions. Uh, and it also talks about um, those four directions that you can include medicine as well. Uh, so starting in the east is the talking lodge, uh, and it's where common concerns are discussed and the issues are identified for, for the student. Uh, and the medicine of the east direction is tobacco, so what do you seek to be answered? And then moving to the south is the planning lodge, and this is where it's discussed how to proceed uh, so what resources, what knowledge, maybe supports that you need to be to have in place for the student um, that might be available in order to find a solution for that student. So the medicine of the south direction is cedar, and, and that means what nurturing is needed. And then moving to the west is the teaching lodge, where knowledge and support were identified and sought out. Uh, and the medicine of the west direction is sage. So how do we attain clarity of mind and heart? What wisdom do we have? What can we draw on from those who went before us? And then moving to the north is the healing lodge where the knowledge is gathered to resolve the issues uh, is contemplated and the medicine of the north direction is sweet grass. How do we bring out about balance and positive energy? And so it's just a way of thinking about trauma-informed practice uh, when you do have students in, in your classroom who might be experiencing trauma. Uh, and second, I wanted to talk about William Aguilar and Regine Helsa's work with the National Collaboration Center for Aboriginal Health, and they give five practices that you can include in your classroom. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about them. And the first one is adopting a decolonizing process. So it's important for Indigenous peoples to understand where our intergenerational trauma comes from, um, as, as I've mentioned before. Uh, and the last time we did our podcast together, we spent time learning about what intergenerational trauma is and the different types of intergenerational trauma that Indigenous peoples experience here in Canada. And this is really important work. Uh, it's work that I'm involved in, uh, in my own research and within my own community, helping my community members learn about colonization and the negative impacts that it has had on us as Indigenous peoples. So learning about colonization is considered one of the first steps of healing. Uh, and this is something that can be implemented at the educational level. It goes along with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, as well as the new teaching quality standards that teachers are accountable for, and as well as the new superintendent leadership quality standards as well. So including Indigenous knowledges as part of the curriculum benefits Indigenous students in several ways. Um, first, the research shows that it helps to create a positive ethnic identity and improve psychological and social functioning, including higher self-esteem, stronger self-efficacy, a greater sense of social competence, which encourages participation in the learning environment. Uh, and from my own research, I found that it helps instill resiliency in the child to withstand racism that they'll encounter in their life. Uh, secondly, including Indigenous values in the curriculum fosters holistic healing and the improvement of emotional and physical spiritual health. Uh, and in Chandler and Lilan's research study, they found that if you do um, include Indigenous values into the curriculum and teach Indigenous children about their values, that it actually decreases suicide rates among that Indigenous population. Uh, and in my own research, I found that including Indigenous teachings in the classroom is not only beneficial for Indigenous students, but for non-Indigenous students as well. It helps non-Indigenous students to develop a more positive perception of Indigenous peoples, which really uh, is helpful in general in the entire decolonizing process. So the, the second practice is fostering individualized learning. And the author suggests that this includes offering accessible opportunities, time, appropriate support, safety, motivation, and risk with the manageable consequences. And they also suggest having supports in place outside of the classroom. So that could include collaboration with appropriate external agencies, such as mental health professionals to assist trauma victims uh, and make changes to school policy that include enhanced counseling services support groups and broader acknowledgement of the issue within curriculum. And the third practice that they recommend is creating a safe learning environment. So there needs to be uh, a safe environment that is not only physically safe, but emotionally safe as well in order for a student to learn. Uh, and a part of this is acknowledging how violence can impact learning. So the authors also give suggestions of establishing a climate of supportive cooperation provide a connection with caring individuals and help students feel that they have worth. Uh, and classrooms must be free from physical and relational threats and foster a warm, trusting and mutually empathetic environment, which emphasizes respect, acceptance and openness. Uh, and the next practice that they suggest is adopting a holistic perspective to both formal and informal pedagogical techniques. And the authors, um, also suggests using educational programs that are holistic 
utilizing both formal and informal pedagogical techniques that involve the mind, body, and spirit, as this technique encourages students to heal by addressing their personal and emotional issues in the classroom. Uh, and the authors share Van Cleef's work uh, that suggests using reflective journaling, case studies, critical incident reflection, role-playing and self-reflective portfolio development to help learners gain new meaning from their own experiences that they've had. Uh, and the last practice that they uh, offer is acknowledging the impact of violence and trauma in people's lives and learning. And if we want our students to be successful in school, the authors suggest that we cannot be silent about how trauma affects our learning. We need to be open about it and develop strategies to implement in our classroom that helps our students regain control of their lives again. And, and so all of these, these frameworks and strategies are things that you can do you know, through kindergarten to grade 12 and even in post-secondary. But I feel that it's very important to be able to introduce these types of practices while the child is young so that they do have certain uh, strategies that they can use if they do um, experience trauma as they grow older. I, I think it gets harder um, the older a child does get if they don't have those kinds of supports in place, it, it makes them harder to um, feel like school is a, a place that is safe uh, and somewhere where they want to be. So if that's something that can be addressed early on in their educational career, it will be better for them in the long run. But again, that's also really hard because you don't know if you're gonna have that child all the way from kindergarten to grade 12. So it, it just uh, really shows how important it is to have trauma-informed practices uh, in your classroom as well uh, as making changes to policy as well. That's a, a lot of information um, and I, I really appreciate it because I, I think um, generally speaking, uh, many of us say, um, you know, we're safe and caring in our classroom. Um, and then um, we all probably can, and, and I know I am one for sure, that can do more, more work, more research, more understanding this, like the strategies uh, you, you gave to us and, and what we can do in our classroom. Um, I, I look at it like this, um, you know, if we don't teach a, a kid uh, the sounds of the letters in kindergarten, we know they're not gonna be successful um, when they move to the next grade level and, and continue on. So the more we can learn to help kids uh, understand trauma, understand how to deal with it, um, how, how, to, how to regulate when I become dysregulated um, through good strategies and understanding the research behind it and the brain research that we already talked about, about flip lid and things like that. Um, the stronger we can have and the more impact we can have on students and help, helping them have a, a good experience in school, but not, not just a good experience, but be able to be good learners, which translates into lifelong learning and, and the opportunity to learn um, throughout your, your life and, and better, better your life, whatever that means for each individual. Um, it doesn't mean we all have to be doctors and lawyers and and uh, teachers or whatever, but but what is it that you want? What is your dream? Uh, what is what is your I guess why um, when you understand who you are and and so we can help that and have a have a strong impact on students there. So I, I really appreciate um, 
Dr. Preet joining us for two sessions and being involved in this and, and sharing this information. Um, I, I hope that many of us uh, as educators and even as parents take opportunity to, um, to do a, our own deep learning on some of these things. Like I said, even, even just understanding um, uh, Dr. Dan Siegel's flip lid theory and, and taking and understanding where we're at with that and, and the, the power and influence that uh, uh, anxiety and stress and, and moving to that level of, of toxic stress can have on us and related to, uh, as you mentioned, fight, flight and freeze and, and all of the things combined together. Um, how do we help students have a, a great experience uh, in school? And, and so, uh, Dr. Preet, I really appreciate um, the learning that I've got from you and hope others do as they listen to our podcast from our last two sessions. So thank you so much for joining us and I appreciate um, all that you do and sharing your expertise with uh, Westwind and our, and our listening community.